Well, uh, welcome today. I have Rafael Pereira with me, who's a university lecturer in statistics at the Department of Primary Care Health Sciences. Good day Hello. to you. Good Rafael. morning. So, um, Rafael's got expertise in statistics and runs the monitoring group here in Oxford and has been working in primary care healthcare statistics and is a good friend of mine for some 15 years now. So, we're going to look today at three different papers while we have this discussion. The first of them is Absence of Evidence is Not Evidence of Absence by Doug Altman. The second is a really uh, interesting paper which does date quite a bit, 1763, <laughs> an essay towards solving a problem, problem in the doctrine of chances by the late Reverend Mr. Bayes. And our final paper is actually generalised linear models. So, wow, we're really going to see how we get on with that. So, um, look, let me start. Um, let's say I'm a up-and-coming student, I'm doing a PhD, and I've come to see a statistician. What do you think are the best ways to prepare? What do you think people should really know in statistics before they say, come to you? They may be an epidemiologist, they may be a clinician, or, but what are the sort of problems you see where you think, well, you could have actually solved that yourself? I think, I think the main issue that we deal with day-to-day uh, -day is that people believe that statistics is mainly about a series of techniques that you would employ once you have your data that will give you an answer or the answer that you want. And uh, more and more, fortunately, people are beginning to realize that it's not about that. So statistics is really a way of thinking. It's more about um, trying to understand how the data is generated and in because of the same reason, what sort of data would be the most appropriate to answer a particular question. So really we want to be involved, or people need to be um, thinking about statistics, or if you want study design, whatever you want to call it, from the very early phase of your study. And you want to think about what are the reasons why you want to collect the information, what's the best possible information you, want to, you, you possibly can collect to answer the, the, the question that you have in mind. And once you have that, if, you, if you're thinking adequately early on, then the methods you're going to use could be very simple methods. Sometimes they have to be slightly more complex, sometimes they have to be slightly more technical. But generally, if you have your question set up right, gather your data right, then the methods that you're going to employ will be relatively simple ones. So let me come on on that point, because I think over the years I've seen this problem a lot. I'd say it's one of the major problems people say, I have a bit of data. Yeah. Can I see a statistician? Yeah. And actually the issue is you have some data and most of the time is we're trying to say, well, what question do you want to ask of this data? That's correct. So the almost is, is almost reciprocal. So if you start early on thinking, okay, what are the data, what data I'm going to be collecting to match the right question, then the methods you're going to be employing are going to be very simple. When it becomes really complex is when people suddenly arrive and say, I've been collecting data for the last 20 years. This is my life's data yeah. set. I want to do something. Uh, you think, well, what do you want to do? What, what are the questions that you want to address? And sometimes, and th this was very, very good advice that I got from um, Pat Yotkin, who was uh, the, the, the statistician when I first arrived to this department. She said, well, first thing you need to ask is, what's your question? And m very often you'll find that when people come in with data, they don't have a question. And that's, that's crucial because I, as a statistician, sometimes I have my own questions, but they might not necessarily match the questions that the clinician or epidemiologist would be wanting to answer. 
So I, I guess this is, I just relate this to this sort of old trials and making old trial data available. This is a real concern of people. They say, well, if we make data available, yeah. people are just going to do what they call dredging. Yeah. Which I, I guess is what is the real concern when you have lots of data available. And, and to, to, to people out there, what does that sort of mean, this term you see often bounded about sort of data dredging, if you like? So data dredging is mainly about, and it's, it's, it's seen as a very pejorative term, but I'll, I'll come to back to why nowadays it's not as, as bad um, um, or has been rebranded into something that is being called now data mining. But data dredging is mainly about exploring information, exploring data, uh, without a clear idea what you want to look at. It's, it's mainly doing loads of different um, comparisons, could be, for example, if you have different subgroups, or just looking at any kind of structure that the data might be, um, uh, might happen to have, and then come up and say, this is an answer, this is the answer to a question. So it's, it's, it's almost re reverse engineering, ending up with an answer and then going back and, oh, what was the question that was going to be answered by that? Okay. Yeah. yeah, no, that's interesting. So look, that, that's a really interesting start. Let's move on to some of these papers okay. you surprised yeah. with. It's a bit of a tautology. The absence of evidence is not evidence of, a, of absence. Um, and this paper talks a, a little bit about throwing the term negative in the bin. And I'll say what it, it, it's published in the BMJ. It's by Doug Altman and Martin Bland, which many people will know as the Bland-Altman pots, which... If we have time, we might come back to that. So by convention, a p-value greater than 5%, p greater than 0.05, is called not significant. Randomized controlled clinical trials that do not show a significant difference between the treatments being compared are often called negative. Yeah. yeah I mean, this artificial p of 0.05, mm -hmm. where does that come from and... Why do we get in this bind? You do see this, well, it doesn't work or it's negative. Uh, the threshold, if we want to call it, of P.05 is remnant to when before we had computers. And before then, what had happened is people had looked at specific, what we call statistical distributions. People might know the normal distribution as the, the, the main one, which is a bell-shaped distribution, but there's many other types of distributions, not only that one and calculated the specific value for that distribution at different probabilities. So it would be, for example, a probability of 1%, what would be the value of that distribution? A probability of uh, 5%, 10%. And because they calculated these numbers, they became the thresholds that people could then use in their calculations. So they, they were just very specific values. Yeah. And the same thing applies for the normal distribution as to for other distributions that are very commonly used in other statistical methods. For example, the F distribution or the T distribution. That might be a, uh, what other people have heard of. Now, with the arrival of the computer, it allows us to calculate the reverse. So for whatever value of X, for example, a standard normal distribution, what would be the probability? The, 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 will be, let's say that the, the p-value from that number onwards. And with that uh, approach, it meant that a threshold of 0.05 became a little bit outdated, which means that what, what it boils down to is mm -hmm. if you have a certain amount of information, do your calculation, end up with a p-value of 0.051, that 
quantitatively and qualitatively is not different from 0.05. Mm -hmm. yeah. So having a predefined threshold of 0.05 is really a line in the sand which says, well, you'll get it wrong one in 20 times, roughly speaking. But <coughs> people are moving away from that threshold and thinking more of what is the actual p-value. Is it very, very small? Is it relatively large? And making more, if you want, qualitative decisions based around that p-value. Okay. So that's interesting. So one of the things that we often find and people are doing is, and this paper's about, is that it's more around the sort of sample size issues. Mm -hmm. And and it talks about here, Freeman et al. found that only 30% of a sample of 71 trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine with a P greater than 0.1 were large enough to have a 90% chance of detecting even a 50% difference in the effectiveness of the treatments being compared. Yeah. So when we talk, uh, there's a sort of terminology alpha and beta, isn't there, in sample size. So what you see this as 80% power to detect a certain difference yep. with an amount of confidence around that estimate. Could you just sort of elaborate? Try to explain a little. Try to explain. Yeah. I guess uh, somebody said it's, ma it's math with letters, which for us as, as clinicians is really difficult to understand. Just try and explain them terms a bit so people can understand how you arrive at sample size calculation. Okay, so let me, let me give you a, a brief, um, so, some brief um, terminology of what we use and set the scene of how we calculate these samples. Most of the calculations that we do or most of the comparisons that we do are based around medians, or sorry, means. So means of something, for, it, could, it could be for example a mean um, number of individuals, or the proportion of individuals that um, proportion can be thought as a, as a similar type of mean. So proportion of individuals that recover in one group compared to proportion of people that recover if you give them a different type of treatment. So proportions can be thought of also as a, as a kind of mean if you want. Um, other types of means would be, for example, the mean blood pressure of one individual in one group. So the mean blood pressure if you don't give them treatment versus the mean blood pressure if you give them treatment. Most of these comparisons are around means. Now, means are a really interesting statistic because the more data you have, the more information you'll have about the overall mean of the population. And that translates into having more precise information around the mean. So if we think about that idea of precision, as we extend the sample and we gather more precision, more information about where the actual mean of that group happens to be, what happens is when you compare two groups, if you have bigger numbers in each one of these groups with increased precision, you increase the certainty about a separation, if a separation exists between these two groups. And that's where the term sample size comes in. The separation that exists within these two groups is a hypothetical separation. Before we start the, the experiment, if you want, we don't know if that separation exists. So it's down now to comparing two ideas or two hypotheses. It might be one idea, first we usually call it the null hypothesis or the null idea, that there's no difference between the two groups, in which case it doesn't matter how big a sample size is going to be, we're still going to get, in fact, the, the bigger the sample it is, the more precise we, precisely we'll know that there's no difference between these two things, versus another hypothesis, another idea that there's some degree of separation. And it is this degree of separation, it could be 10 uh, uh, millimeters of mercury, for example, or 20 minutes of mercury, we're talking about blood pressure. Um, if we have a clear separation, if there's a very big separation, we need less data, smaller sample size. If there's a smaller separation between these two samples, we need more data because we need to increase the precision. And that's where this term of alpha, how 
uh, if we reject, if we how much information we need to collect in order to decide whether one hypothesis is correct, or we think we have evidence to reject one hypothesis in fact, or not, and beta, which is the capacity of us in a given experiment to identify or to collect data to say that this is actually happening is, is the, uh, the other approach. And so why do some people, like here they go 90% power and some people say 80% power and you put some grant applications in and people say you increase the power. Why, why do people do that? Or if what's we, the rationale? If we, if we think about it in, in sort of re repetitions of the same experiment. So if you were doing this experiment loads of times, because this is probably the easiest way to think about it theoretically. If you were to do the randomized control trial a hundred times, with these numbers, let's say if you choose, if you find that the sample size you need is 200 in each group. With those numbers, 200 in each group, if you run it a hundred times, a power of 80% or a power of 90% will tell you how many times, 80 out of 100 or 90 out of 100, you will find a significant okay. finding. Okay, that's helpful. That's, that's made that simple even for me. And interesting, we've just finished, there's one point I think about this paper which um, published in 1995 in the BMJ, so it's quite a, it's not an old paper, but it's... It, 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 is, it is new compared to the other two. Yeah, yeah, compared. <laughs> and I guess there's something here about probably why systematic reviews came about. It talks about uh, fibrinolytic treatments, mainly streptokinase, mm -hmm. in acute myocardial infarction. And the overview of randomized controlled trials, which is what we now know as a systematic review, found a modest but clinically worthwhile and highly significant reduction in mortality of 22%. But only five of the 24 trials had shown a statistically significant effect with a P less than 0.05. Yep. And as sort of some estimation, I just wonder, is this an old problem? It sort of says, why do researchers underpower? Or is that still a problem we see today? that actually many trials are still underpowered and we need to do more? Or are we actually moving into an age now where we're just seeing much larger trials? I think there's a combination of things there. So for one thing, probably nowadays people are more um, clear on their idea of power. And if you have a primary outcome, they normally funders would be adamant that you need enough information out there, enough patients, a large enough sample size to find if, there's, if, the, if the primary outcome is going to, to show um, a significant finding or not. So the problem of powering on a primary outcome, it's, I'm not saying it's solved, but it's not as big as it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. However, you have to think that each study will be looking at one particular primary outcome, and there might be a whole host of other secondary outcomes that might be even more clinically relevant, but simply because they're less likely to have been reported, the event rate is smaller, then it means that you need much bigger sample sizes to identify an effect in those types of outcomes, uh, which means that a person doing a study might be focusing on a completely, on a proxy, which is not as clinically relevant as a secondary outcome. By definition, then, it means that that particular study will be underpowered for that secondary outcome. And that means that you will need still to use all these different studies that look at relatively the same population, some similar questions, combine them all in systematic reviews to find the real, hopefully, the, if not the real answer, uh, to gather enough evidence to say, well, we think this is the right answer. Yeah, okay, good. And it's interesting, it finishes this, we'll just finish this paper with this sort of bold statement, which I think is probably worth imprinting on your mind. Mm -hmm. 
When we are told that there is no evidence that A causes B, we should first ask whether absence of evidence means simply that there is no information at all. Yes. If yes. there are data, we should look for quantification of the association rather than just a p-value. Yeah. Quanti- what does that mean? So I can understand the first bit. We haven't got the evidence, so you shouldn't say this is negative. You should just say, look, we don't know the answer. We don't know. But this quantification of the association rather than the p-value... So, so that's, that's, for example, um, if you have information from randomized controlled trials and it's still uncertain as to what, what the real answer is because we don't have enough information, you might go back and look at observational studies. So the classic example might be of serious adverse events where from randomized controlled trials you might get some idea of what the serious adverse events are but you don't have enough information because it's just not enough numbers and the serious adverse events might be very, very small. So you might want to revert back and look at what other sources of information might be providing you with um, uh, more relevant data to explore whether there's an association or not. And that's what that's referring to. So you might want to use other forms of information to quantify if an association might be present. Okay, yeah, well, that's good. Let's move back now just to 1763. Okay, I noticed okay. this. Small jump. I noticed this, uh, an essay towards solving a problem in the doctrine of chances. Yes. I noticed it was submitted on the 23rd of December, well, so obviously you know. just in time for Christmas. <laughs> now, this is um, interesting. I read this, actually went over this again yesterday. Some bits of it are complex, but there's some very interesting bits in there. But let's, I guess uh, the Reverend Mr. Bates yep. is somebody who most people coming into statistics, epidemiology, will have heard of the concept of Bayesian reasoning. That's correct. That's in a way the reason why I chose this paper. Okay, so give me the reason why I chose this piece and give me, in as succinct as possible, if possible at all, what is Mr. Bayes' issue in Bayesian reasoning? Well, actually, this paper is not about Bayesian reasoning which is probably one thing that uh, people might find odd. Okay. It's, it's not about um, the usual thing that people associate. Well, it is and it isn't. The, the main focus of this paper is not about Bayesian reasoning. It's about trying to solve a slightly different problem, uh, which you can then regard as a Bayesian problem or a frequentist problem. Which, uh, there's, there's a separation there between two camps. Um, uh, that was went on for many years and probably now is converging because people don't necessarily knew statisticians or um, probably at least in the last decade or so use Bayesian or frequentist methods depending on what's more useful. Anyway, this paper is the focus of this paper is trying to understand or coming up with a series of um, proofs uh, and um, propositions to answer the, the following question, the sim- relatively simple following question. If you have a, a series of experiments that are independent and you observe the series of experiments, what are the outcomes of these series of experiments? Let's say tossing a coin. You toss a coin, which is an, un- an unfair coin, so we don't know exactly the probability. If it was a fair coin, we would know it's 50-50 chance. But it is an unfair coin, so we don't know what the probability of landing heads or tails is. But we observe a series of heads or a series of tails. And the question that he is trying to answer is, if we knew what, if we have observed all these outcomes of the experiments, can we quantify what are the chances of this probability of heads, let's say, 
being between a number of another, let's say be between 0.8 and 0.9. And that's in a way revolutionary because although he doesn't think about it this way and can be thought of it in a frequencies way, it switches around the problem of most of the time we think, okay, given that we know this is a fair coin, 50-50, or given that we know that this coin is um, 0.8, probability of 0.8 of being heads and 0.2 of being tails, what are my chances of winning eight times? And this is the other way around. So it switches it to saying, okay, given that we observe all this evidence, what are, how can we bound and calculate or determine the, prob the, the probability of heads or the probability of, of tails? Now, within this paper, I think it's proposition four and five, you find the basis to, of what is called Bayesian reasoning, okay. which is all about, um, in a way, conditional probability. So given that one experiment, of, uh, if you have two events that, um, that only if both events happen, you will receive a prize, let's say, and you observe either one event and not the other, what are, how do you update your probability or calculate the probability on the first event? And all this conditional probability, if we then revert that into parameters, like for example this probability of heads or probability of tails, gets us back to Bayesian reasoning, directly to Bayesian reasoning. So it's interesting, yeah, I mean you look at it, so it says here, let's find out a method by which we might judge concerning the probability that an event has to happen in given circumstances, mm -hmm upon supposition that we know nothing concerning it, but that under the same circumstances it has happened a certain number of times and failed a certain other number yep, of times. that's right. But I guess it goes back to the larger paper because there's a bit here on, on page 372 um, that the larger the number of experiments we have to support a conclusion, so much more the reason we have to take it for granted. Yes, and th this is at the heart of statistics, if you want. We can't, with, with, with statistics, we can't prove anything. And that's, that's a major thing that um, needs to be ingrained on everyone that uses statistics or, or works in statistics should, should have. We can't prove anything. And it's also sort of part of the scientific method. Science allows for uncertainty, should allow for uncertainty. We think we know, but we should always be ready to readjust if the information out there, if the evidence out there suddenly switches or changes or changes our ideas behind it. So what here, what he's saying is, the more information we have, the more certain we should be, which makes sense, but it doesn't say we should be certain, which is, I think, a clear distinction. So that's interesting because I'm just looking here through. I noted yesterday when I was reading that there's a particular here on 409 when he talks about when you're born and it talks about a, a second appearance or one of the return of the sun and an expectation would re re be raised in him of a second return and he might know that there was an odds of 3 to 1 for some probability of this. So it talks about the fact the sun's going to come up tomorrow and it would increase, but it would never be 100% certain. That's correct, yes. So basically, statisticians can never be certain of anything. Uh, yes, that's correct. We can never be certain. We can attach a probability to, to our uncertainty. Can say we're, I'm 90% sure. 
Okay, so let, I, I think this bit was really interesting to me. There's loads in this. Some of this is a bit complicated for me, but there seems to be loads even like around normal distributions and everything in here. And another important thing to highlight of this paper is how much the, the writing in statistics has changed. So, as, as I mean, I also had, to be honest, I also had trouble following some of his proofs and some of his arguments. And this is mainly because although it's using logical argument to present what his proposition or his um, uh, justification for the different propositions that he's, he's making in the paper, it doesn't use um, what we now would be the, the main tool that we now use, which is algebra. So with uh, algebraic terms, things, for people that have, have studied maths particularly, things become a lot more simple to follow. And the, the second paper about Net Nelda uses fairly complex algebra, um, but still relatively easy to follow compared to the 50 pages or so that uh, Reverend Bias uses. Well, here. look, let's try this out. Look, some of this is on the last page here, 418. Okay, let's try it. It says, since this was written, I found a method of considerably improving the approximation in the 2D and 3D rules by demonstrating that the expression, and I have no chance of saying <laughs> that expression, uh, so I want to test your ability to communicate this uh, equation to our audience today without taking any breaths or pauses in between. Ooh, that's, that's going to be quite tricky, but let, let, me, let me have a go. So the equation says something like, it's a ratio, and it's 2 sigma divided by 1 plus 2 expectation of a uh, to the p to, to the power of p, b to the power of q, plus 2e, a to the power of p, b to the power of q divided by n. And it, it, it sounds, and it looks very complex. And the, the main thing is, we use these approximations, so we use these values. Many times they come from fairly large uh, calculations, fairly large sums, that are then simplified with um, assumptions and arguments that would say, for example, well, this, this particular value we think is very, very small, so we can get rid of it. Or this particular value cancels with another thing, so let's get rid of it. And end up with something that would be relatively simple to compute, usually at, at this time, obviously, in the 18th century by hand, uh, that would then allow them to use to create an approximation to a calculation that they wanted to obtain. Nowadays, with computers, we end up with really, really large equations. So this, they talk about an expression that is an approximation. Nowadays, we have expressions of many several uh, lines long, which we can then include in a computer that would get us a much more, an, 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 a value that is much more closer to the real value that we want to calculate. It's usually still an approximation, but it's much closer to what we want. Well, a lot. there's no chance I could say that. So if you can say that without coming up for breath, that means you're pretty qualified in statistics. I think <laughs> that should be in the exam. Let's say just page 376, there's some issues here which I think are definitions, which he says are fundamental to probability, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. And I guess probability is, is a fundamental principle in healthcare. We're always trying to estimate what's the risk of A causing B. But just point ones and twos here. Several events are inconsistent when if one of them happens, none of the rest can. can. And then mm -hmm. point two, two events are contrary when one or other of them must and both together cannot happen. Yes. And I, and I we touched on it, you might have mentioned it before, with these terms, I, 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 they're sort of the terms of independent and dependent, are they in the same way? And yes. Maybe just explain them, because yes. they seem to be important concepts, aren't they? Yeah, so, so you have um, things like um, 
but if you have independent, um, well, these first two terms are mainly about uh, what we call sometimes disjoint events. So there is a series of events that one of them might happen or, or, or not happen. And in those cases, we, we say that these events are not independent because if one happens, the other will not happen, for example. And they're particularly useful for defining what are the totality of events that might happen. And that also defines everything that might, might happen if you want. So that's, that's, that's a really crucial aspect of probability because then you say, well, if you have only one type of event, death, let's, let's say, the contrary of that would be surviving. And if you are not dead, you're alive. And the, the sum of those two things are so to, to one. Now, the, other, the flip side of that is when you have events that are independent of each other. And that normally means that the, the if one of those events occur, it does not affect the other event. And this is a little, a little bit more difficult to come up with examples of what th these might be. Let's think about it, for example, uh, whether it's going to be sunny or rainy today. So that might be one event. Let's say it's, it's sunny today for a change here in Oxford. And then the type of um, breakfast I'm going to have. I normally have toast, but I might have eggs. And I haven't seen whether, whether the weather report is. And it might be that if it's, it might be exactly the same temperature. So it might not necessarily affect my decision of, of what I'm going to have for breakfast. So the probability of me having eggs or having a piece of toast and the probability of it being sunny or raining or the events are thought to be independent because one will not affect the other. What tends to happen is that these type of probabilities are not very, um, or independence between two events are not very easy to show, in, particularly in medical um, terminology, medical statistics, because many things are associated and the concept of association and correlation then becomes very, very important to use. Yeah, okay, great. I mean, that's a, a, a real education, this paper, and then we could have probably stayed here for about an hour going over this paper, and there are a whole better ten problems there's, to look at. There's many things in there. But, but well, let's move on now. We're, we're into a paper in the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society, which you're a member of the yeah, Royal Statistical that's, Society. That's right. Worth joining if you're a stats-interested person. Definitely, definitely. There's, there's loads of different chapters, medical statistics, primary care. Uh, uh, I think there's, there's, there's several that, so people if are interested are welcome to join. Not only statisticians, but also people that are interested in statistics, of course. And then we've got this paper by J.A. Nelder and R.W.M. Wedderburn, and it's about generalised linear models from 1972. Yep. So, um, I guess the first thing is to say, well, what's a generalised linear model? <clears throat> this paper I chose because it really is, um, is presenting a series of methods that underpins most of the modeling we use or we, we do in medical statistics. Not all of it, but most of it. If we think of a model being a way of saying what will happen to, let's say, my health, given that what, what are my chances, let's say, of, of, of not having, or, or let's say, of having a cardiovascular event, a heart attack, given that I am a smoker, and I'm overweight, I'm an adult, 55, that I am, etc. Et in the next year, what are my probabilities of having a heart attack in the next year? That association of the different factors of the individual and something else is a model. 
And what these papers are describing is a series, a type of models that links up pretty much any kind of modeling or most kind of modeling that we do yep. in, in medical, medical statistics. The reason why I call linear is because we show each one of these factors would have a linear or a line, if you want, to some shape of, let's say in this case, a transformation of the probability. It might be a lot easier to explain in terms of, let's say, weight and height. So we want to explain height in relation to weight. We can fit a line saying that um, the, height, the taller you are... The, the so you fit in a line a lot sort of y and x yes. curves of height against weight. But yeah. what these models do is extend that line, which would be only in certain circumstances would be useful, only when you have a direct transformation of x and y, to other types of approaches, like for example probability, like for example risk, like for example, what are the other ones? Um, so he talks about the Poisson distribution, he talks about the... Well, let me come in on that, let me yeah. come in on Look, The introduction, and this is the thing for us, I said, simple uh, clinic, clinicians. In the first, almost, it's two sentences. Yeah. Let's just listen to these two. Linear models customarily embody both systematic and random error components, where the errors usually seem to have normal distributions. The associated analytic technique is least squares theory. Yeah. Now, look, I've got one, two, three. Systematic random error I need to know about. Normal distributions, two. And then I've got least squares theory. Now, no wonder I'm in trouble. Yes. So, <clears throat> then how do, give us a, how would you go about sort of thinking these things through? And how would a student sort of then think, well, you've got to understand these concepts before you can then move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These... I think the best way to approach um, these type of, of models and this type of paper is to think in terms of, first of all, this, this what we call the simple linear regression. So in simple linear regression, which is the, a, a, a specialized case, and by specialized case we call it a simple case of this type of models that, that this paper is presented. In simple linear regression what we have is one variable outcome, whatever you want to call it, that it, we call it a dependent outcome, so something that we want to say something about, and something that is an independent variable, that is something that we either have control of or that we know. So in, a, in again, probably the, the best way to think about it, let's say um, BMI and blood pressure. So okay. as the BMI goes up... That's your weight, isn't it? Like your yeah. yeah, as your weight goes up, maybe your blood pressure is also is also going going up and we might want then to fit a line to uh, if we think of of it in a, in a graphical shape like a scatter plot as your bmi if you plot your bmi individuals with a particular bmi a particular blood pressure you will start seeing a pattern that might follow a line as your bmi goes up your blood pressure goes up and these linear regressions, what they do is, you can just fit a line, say, okay, we draw a line on those points. But because there's going to be small variation, and this comes to the idea of either, um, I think you call it uh, random variability or systematic variability, because there's going to be variability between individuals, and that variability might be because some individuals naturally have lower blood pressures or higher blood pressures. Okay. But it also might be because of the, the measurement error. As you take the blood pressure, you might be... Some error. There's some error in the measurements. There's going to be scatter around that particular line. 
So we use, and here where this weighted least squares comes in, mm -hmm. we use different methods to come up with the best possible line. And that best possible line, in the case of a simple linear regression, is one that minimizes the difference okay. from each point to the line. And that's what the least squares comes in. And, and with this, and then, the, oh God, I'm, I'm starting to understand this, folks. So we've got weight in, say, blood pressure going up in a line, but some people will vary from that line. That's right. And the difference in their variation, you'll use the least squares method. To come up with the best possible line. And there are two sources of variability, the random variability that occurs in blood pressure, but there may be some systematic variability because the blood pressure cuff's not working. For example. And then, look, this is, if I can get this, I'll be happy. Then obtain these approximation to, these sort of weights, isn't there, or betas, is there, or sort of yes. what, so you see. So what's, if you can just get that, that would like be like the panacea, if, if that like. So you have an, a, these, a line which is almost a regression okay. line, and then you talk about either the betas or the weights of each component. There's, there's, there's like two things. So the weights, the weights that they talk about in terms of, of weight uh, least squares is in relation to how much weight you're going to give to each one of these points. And it, it, if you are talking of simple linear regression, you give equal weights to each one of the points. If, for example, you're talking of something slightly more complex where you think some points have more information than others, you give more value to those points. Similar to what happens in meta-analysis where you might give more weight to studies that are bigger. That's one area. The betas that you're talking about is more of the quantification of how much things change by a change of one unit in your independent variable. Let me be a bit more a bit clear. When we're talking about this line, if you think of a line, the line would have a it's completely defined by an intercept that is the point where, where if you had zero BMI. This is completely theoretical, but if you had a zero BMI, what would be your blood pressure? So it might be 20, let's say, hypothetically. So that's, that's, that, in a way, anchors your line, tells you where you start. And then the other bit that completely defines your line is this slope. So by a change of one unit in BMI, how much your blood pressure is going to change. And it might be that when you move from 25, a BMI of 25 to a BMI of 26, your blood pressure increases by two millimeters of mercury. So that too, a change in one unit in, uh, in one unit of BMI is an increase of two units of systolic blood pressure. That too is exactly your slope in the line. Okay. Now the slope and the betas are exactly the same thing. Okay. So what you want to do with a calculation of least squares or whatever you want to call it in order to determine your betas is basically to determine the slopes or the increase in the dependent variable that you obtain by increasing your independent by one unit. So that so basically you like we said is you may have blood pressure may be affected by weight, but yep. you may add another factor in like age. Yep. Which would come into your model That's right. and that would increase the slope or decrease it. What happens is that each one of these characteristics have their own slopes. Yeah. So BMI might have a slope of two, but once you bring age your slope of the of BMI might decrease, as you were saying, to one or one point two, and H is another slope of three or one point okay. two as well. And so then the only other factor, forget this, folks, we're running out of time. Is this this sort of idea in models is how much can be explained 
by the model yeah. and how much cannot. What's that value and how do you test for that? So we're talking about the scatter that you obtain. Yes. And because there's going to be scatter, uh, and it could be natural variability or whatever it is, that scatter is precisely the bit that you can't explain through your model. Yeah. So your line is brilliant if you only have two dots. Yeah. So you can explain anything Everything. with the line if you have yeah. two dots. Once you have three dots or more, three individuals or more, there's going to be some variability you won't be able to explain. Yeah. And that variability you won't be able to explain tells you how good your model is. Okay. And there's different ways of quantifying how good your model is in terms of how much of the total variability of the data you manage to explain. Okay. And that could be in terms of, for example, just looking at the differences from the line to each one of these dots or other types of methods. Gosh, so look, that's been an amazing, very quick journey in 40 minutes on probability, sample size, linear models. Now, look, let's just finish with, let's say, a bit of advice. What would you say is the best advice if you're embarking on a course, epidemiology, statistics? What sort of resource or what would be the best way to just keep improving your statistics knowledge? Improving your statistics knowledge? I think what has worked for me is getting your hands dirty, so doing things. Having some idea of what you want to achieve or what you can possibly achieve through either lectures or through going to courses, but more than anything is then applying these things. So if, for example, you have data and you want to use a particular model, so just a linear model of these kinds, then go ahead and do it. As for advice, Many times there's advice either in the statistical packages, also in the in the in the text, and also in, in, in the individuals in your own own organization or elsewhere. And the earlier you go for advice, the better. That would be the other thing that I would that I would say. Okay. Well on that note, let me just let me just finish here. You only got to answer one here of the two. Okay. Mean or the median? Median. See, like a true statistician has to think about it. Stata or R? R, all the time. Okay, there you go. See, we're speeding up. Well, on that note, I'd like to say thank you very much to Rafael Pereira for what's been a very interesting discussion on statistics and many issues around that. Thank you, Carl. Really You're welcome. Great. Thanks. You're welcome.